This NBA season, make every three-pointer, alley-oop, and buzzer beater even more exciting with FanDuel. You can bet on everything from first baskets and number of dunks to which player will drain the most threes. Or stack your bets with the same-game parlay for a shot to win even bigger. It's quick, easy, and you'll get your winnings fast. So download the app today and see why we're North America's number one sportsbook. Make every moment more with FanDuel. 19 plus and physically located in Ontario. Gambling problem? Call 1-866-531-2600 or visit connectsontario.ca. Support for this episode is brought to you by Mrs. Myers. A delightfully clean home can make for a delightful start to the day. At Mrs. Myers, everything we make is inspired by the garden. With plant-derived ingredients, our cleaning products work like the Dickens, leaving your home sparkly clean and your to-do list tackled in no time. So bring a little bit of the outside inside your four walls and bask in the wonder of a garden from the comfort of home. Mrs. Myers, rooted in goodness. Shop now at MrsMyers.com. Want to hear something amazing? Discover matches all the cash back you earn on your credit card at the end of your first year, automatically, dollar for dollar, with no limit on how much you can earn. Extra cash? Come on, how amazing is that? In fact, it's even more amazing when you realize all the places where Discover is accepted. 99% of places in the U.S. that take credit cards. So when it comes to Discover, get used to hearing yes more often. Learn more at discover.com slash yes. 2020 Nielsen Report limitations apply. You know what I want? <laughs> I want a talk Hello and welcome to the Raptors Extra Weekly Podcast from Raptors Republic. Today, my guest is Matt Moore, NBA writer for the Action Network. You may know him best as HP Basketball or Hardwood Paroxysm. Either way, he hates your team. The first person to trot out the Middleton is better than DeRozan Take, an antagonist to some, but for most, he's a wonderful writer and an integral cog in the larger NBA Twitter community. How's it going, man? Thanks for coming on. It's going well. How excited are you? This is pretty awesome. I'm, I'm very thrilled for all of the Raptors fans that have been long suffering and the fact that they're on the doorstep now of making the finals. I keep thinking about how cool that is for seeing this fan base like grow over the last you know six years. Yeah, it's uh, it's been phenomenal. I mean, I I grew up reading Raptors Republic. I got the reins for this podcast from Will just this year, and all this is happening. It's been. All of it is a pretty cool progression, and to see the team reach these heights is unbelievable. Very rewarding. I guess the first thing I want to talk about, and it was one of the biggest points of conversation for Budenholzer, for you last night on Twitter, for a lot of Raptors adjacent people, is the shooting, and most importantly, the shooting of Fred Van Vliet. So NBA.com said that the Raptors were 0 for 5 on contested triples last night. Every shot they made from downtown was tracked as open or wide open. The caveat of the tracking data being a bit off is in play because Leonard obviously was pretty well covered on both of his threes against Lopez, and tracking data has never been perfect. However, Van Vliet definitely was getting wide open to open shots. That doesn't mean he'll make 7 of 9, but he did. All of his makes look genuinely good. It looks like he's building from a good base when he's shooting. Still... As you're watching that happen, what does your brain keep telling you? Uh, honestly, not like this was my thing. So I have a lot of, of issues in the playoffs because I spend 82 games 
and then all the games in the playoffs, building models in my head of like, this is how teams function. This is how they match up. This is what the differential is going to be. And it's going to come down to like these factors. Like it's going to be like, can Pascal Siakam hit that corner three? Uh, can Kyle Lowry continue to step up the way that he has uh, in what has definitively been his best postseason? Um, will uh, Ersan Ilyasova make or miss shots as he's a good shooter, but inconsistent? Will George Hill continue? Like all of these kind of things are things that's like, all right, these are pressure points in a series. With Fred Van Vliet, you could have told me, you could have asked me before the series, give me what Fred Van Vliet's best line is going to be. And I've been like, he'll have a night where he's probably like got 12 and maybe four or five assists. And he hits, I don't know, he hits two to three three-pointers. Um, and that would have been like the optimum. Like he'll shoot well, he'll play within the offense. I'll be like, oh yeah, he gave you some good minutes. Like I like Fred Van Vliet. I like Fred Van Vliet at Wichita State. I like Fred Van Vliet now. Um, but when I see him hit seven of nine three-pointers in a game decided by six points in which the Raptors were outscored with Kawhi Leonard on the floor when Fred Van Vliet was not on the floor, that's when I'm like, oh, man, come on. Don't let this be, be what decides a great Eastern Conference Finals. But I think it's going to wind up deciding it. It was definitely within the realm of reason that Van Vliet could hit three of five or four of six. Um Five of seven, now it's like, okay, that's a really good night for Fred Van Vliet. Six of eight is, wow, now this is like maybe the best game of his life. Seven of nine is definitively like the best game we'll probably ever see from Fred Van Vliet. Like we will probably never see a game better than 21 points, one rebound, one assist, one steal on seven of 13 shooting and seven of nine. You're absolutely right that those looks were good. Like I'm not, I'm not going to sit here and say like those were just like, random he's throwing him up shots they got him quality looks and fred van vliet like so many role players before him stepped up and knocked down the biggest shots of his career and if he had shot four of of nine which is a good percentage or five of nine i would have just been like gotta tip your cap but in a game decided by six points fred van vliet hit seven of nine and that's what ultimately may have decided the eastern conference finals yeah, seven of nine seems like divine intervention almost. Even though I think most of Raptors fans, myself even, I rate I rate Fred a little higher than like an optimum game of twelve and four, twelve and five. But given the circumstances, given how the playoffs have gone so far, twelve and five would have been well, accepted with open arms from the Raptors, considering how bad he was. Like he was horrible. And like here, here's a couple of interesting things. Well, one. The reason I said 12 and 4 is it wasn't based off of like, oh, this is the most that he can produce. It was, oh, he probably won't play much because Kyle's going to play like 30 to 30. Like, Kyle's going to play like 38 to 42 minutes. And I'm just like, oh, he's like, it's just a touches thing, right? Like, if you're on the floor of Pascal Siakam and Serge Ibaka and Marcus All and Kawhi Leonard and Kyle Lowry and Danny Green and like on down the list, and especially Norman Powell has been great in the series. Like, when is Fred Van Vliet going to get the ball? Like, when is he going to be the one shooting? And the answer was last night in the biggest game of the Raptors season, he's going to be the guy that knocks it down. The thing I think is interesting is, um, like, you know, the, the Raptors fans have been very defensive with me about, like, this bench is really good. And I was like, look, man, I, I follow a lot of Raptors <laughs> fans. And all year long, like, this is what's stunning is one of the reasons I've been lower on the Raptors than Raptors fans in the playoffs 
is because I was around for all those January and February and March nights where Raptors Twitter was like, man, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know about this. I, we just, when we look bad, we are terrible. Like all of the angst that has continuously spewed out of this team. And so to see them like suddenly, like they're, the, they're killing the Bucks bench, just killing them. When the Bucks bench has been the best and most solid and most consistent of any team in the league this season. These are the kind of things where I'm just like, I don't know how I was expected to have seen this coming. Yeah, the thing is, with Fred VanVleet, his success, what I think is a lot of Raptors fans want him to profile as Kyle Lowry's heir apparent. When I think he's more like a shorter version of Danny Green. He gives you that really sticky, chase you around a, like a down screen, chase you around a pin down type of defense. And he's a really good off-ball shooter. But when he's on ball, I'm sure you watching those possessions, you see he runs a pick-and-roll possession. Basically, it's going to end up that he's just dribbling the ball back out and they reset when they use him properly. And like you alluded to, they're, they're playing him with Kawhi Leonard and apparently finding a ton of success with that. Who knew? Then, then good things happen. And the bench, like, working things out, the, the bench was really, really bad during the regular season. I don't know why people would suggest that it's supposed to be good now. It, it really seems like the Raptors are just getting the best out of guys at the That's perfect time. Uh, yeah. And, like, a lot of this, too, I think is, like, um, to put it in, in some better context is, okay, so a lot of it was in the regular season, you're rolling out, you're rolling out four to five-man bench units, right? And now you're rolling out two to three-man bench units with at least two starters on the floor at all times. Like, you know, the, when, the, when they made their run last night, if you go back and, like, on, on Popcorn Machine, uh, if you go to popcornmachine.net, it's got basically, like, a really good graphic of where the runs happen. Like, the 16-2 to two run largely occurred um, to start that second quarter with Lowry, Siakam, Ibaka, Powell, and Van Vliet. Now, that's, that's three roll bench guys in Ibaka, Powell, and Van Vliet, but Ibaka was, like, a part-time starter this year. Right, like Ibaka, Gasol, and Siakam. Like Siakam is clearly the best and is a definitive starter. But like before the JV trade, Ibaka was part-time starter. So that's really it's like if you want to count like Ibaka is like a half starter. That's two and a half starters and two and two bench guys. Um, when they made the when they were they went plus four over a uh, seven-minute stretch in the in the fourth in the second quarter, it was Lowry, Siakam, Leonard, Gasol, and Van Vliet. So that's four starters and a bench guy. They rattled off a 9-0 run in the third quarter, and much of that was done with Lowry, Kawhi, Serge, Powell, and Van Vliet. So, like, you're getting really good minutes from Ibaka in this series. You're getting really good minutes from Powell in the series. You're getting incredible minutes from Van Vliet in the series. And you're supplementing that with Lowry and Leonard so that, like, at all times, you have, like, two of your best five players on the floor with two of your you know, bench, definitive bench guys, and then, like, one guy that's kind of vacillating in the middle. And that formula, I think, has really been good because the Bucks have been really responding with, um, you know, they they respond with these stretches where, like, they tried out uh, Urson, Brooke Lopez, Pat Connaughton, George Hill, and Chris Middleton, and that lineup just absolutely got killed. Like, when Middleton's not attached to Giannis, they're getting murdered. It's why uh, Chris Middleton's on-off splits in the series are really bad. Um, 
and like Nikola, like he's been tethered to Nikola Mirotic, who's been a disaster. When you put Middleton next to Giannis, everything's fine. And that's going to be my big question in six is, Bud said the other day, we want a fresh Giannis. We want the best Giannis. So we're still going to try and keep him to 31 to 35 minutes. Well, your season's now on the line. You played in 39 the other night. Your season's now on the line. You can't afford to take him off. You're going to have to play like either either Mike Budenholzer is going to play Yonatan and Kumpo 45 to 48 minutes or they're going to lose. Yeah, the thing is it's it's been kind of there's obviously a very stark contrast between the Raptors how they play their starters and lean on quote unquote their guys as opposed to the Bucks. And most confusing thing is probably how often the Bucks are grouping terrific players together because that's something that the Raptors really identify with and that's been one of the strengths and feats of this team. But you look at how often Middleton, uh, Giannis, and uh, Brogdon share the floor and it's it's not so often. I saw a tweet about it that was it was less than 15 minutes, I think, in uh, Game 5. And you want that probably to be at least 20 minutes. Like, at least 20 minutes. And I'm just shocked to see... Like, Budenholzer, obviously, everybody knows he... He maintains his lineups, he has his method, and they follow that, and they follow that to great success, as the Hawks did. But the Raptors have made the adjustment and put the onus on the Bucks. And like you said, you have to come back with something. And whether that's playing Giannis an exorbitant amount of minutes or sticking, clumping, I should say, your best players together for longer stretches, there just has to be a response. What do you think will happen, provided that Brogdon is coming back from an injury he looks great by the way he was his um, return to the lineup was actually what made me switch from raptors and seven to bucks and six just because i think brogdon is that good he poses a lot of problems for the raptors but he's coming back from injury Giannis isn't really used to playing 45 minutes middleton a lot of the bucks guys don't play those heavy minutes a lot of the time what do you think happens what is their response if Budenholzer goes that way and trots them out for like 40 plus minutes in a game. Um, I, I, I have a lot of faith in Giannis. Like, I just don't think Giannis gets tired. I think that he's, yeah. and part of it also is like, okay, if you want to take the big picture, look at it. If you're like, it's not just about the season. All right. Well, guess what? Eventually Giannis is going to have to do this. Like LeBron had to do this. Like people know, know how good LeBron is and he attracts lots of talent. And yet like, Giannis, like LeBron's had to do 45 plus a lot. Um, and this is just this is the burden. Like heavy, like heavy is the crown. That's how it works, you know. Like the only player to cross forty minutes last night was Kawhi Leonard because he's their best player. And it's just like you you have to have your your best guy. That's been a lot of the series is um, everyone's making a lot of Kawhi outplaying Giannis, and he has. But a lot of it is just that Kawhi's beaten the snot out of the Bucks bench units. The Bucks bench units are are crazy. Like I looked it up, and I, I haven't done the update since Game Five. But when Kawhi's been on the floor with Giannis, the Bucks have been ahead. The Bucks have outscored the Raptors with Giannis on the court and Kawhi on the court up until Game Five, at least. Um, and then whenever Giannis is on the bench, Kawhi just goes ham. He just he piles up these runs, and that winds up making a huge difference. Like that winds up being a big differential in how these games. Uh, end up being played like you know he had um he, he he winds up having these big stretches specifically whenever Giannis is out of the game and so I think you have to rely on him I'm not worried about Brogdon uh Brogdon's like a uh, he's like a low impact uh in terms of 
Look at it this way. Brogdon, Brogdon's not running 15 pick and rolls every game. He's not every like time he's in the game. He's not driving into, into three defenders trying to finish through contact. He's not, um, you know, he's not trying to muscle down low in the post. Like the exhaustion level for him is like pretty standard. Um, his foot's probably hurting, but he's been great in this series and he's been their second best player throughout the course of the series. So they're going to have to, like, he's going to have to play heavy minutes too. Um, I don't think he has to play maybe 45 plus, but uh, I think if, if we look at just how this series has gone and how important he's been for them, you know, 34 is too low. He's going to have to get up 37 to 40 and that's going to have to just be where he's at. Like you look at these minutes and it's just wild. Like, you know, like Bledsoe played 34 and I know that Bledsoe has shot badly, but Bledsoe had moments last night where he was really impactful, probably needed him a little bit more. Um, you know, Lopez played only 27. I know that there are reasons why they don't like that, but Lopez is, Lopez has been a part of almost all their big runs in this series, and he needs to be on the floor more. Um, and for the Raptors, I think like they're in the perfect spot. Like they've played everything really perfect. Like ner- one of the biggest things is that Nick Nurse has been like, okay, Dan- this isn't Danny Green series. That's really difficult to take a guy that's been to the finals, that's won a championship, that's got the experience level that Danny has, that is such a smart defender, um, and to be like, okay, this isn't the series for Danny. Like that takes such great like courage and also feel for the team and to be like, I know I can take Danny green out and he's going to be cool. Like, I know it's like, I can not play Danny and I can play <laughs> Fred Van Fleet and Norman Powell. Um, and I could get as good, if not better minutes. And then like next series, it may be different and we'll need more of Danny. Like the, the ability to do that, I think is really impressive. And um, if it hadn't worked out, maybe it would have been tough, but, you know, Danny's been so bad in the series, it's been kind of obvious. Um, everyone wants the Bucks to bench Bledsoe, and I just don't know if you can do that with how bad their other guards have been. Yeah, Bledsoe, I mean, he really deserved his spot on the, the defensive team. He was awesome for most of the year, pushing in transition. Big piece of what the Bucks call their identity. And, like, his flurry in game one was almost trans- sorry, transformative for the Bucks. Like, he really... They took a big step in that game, and it, it was shocking, actually, to see the Raptors hang around, punch up, punch up, punch up, and stick in it. But Bledsoe was a huge part of that run. He helped in the third quarter a lot. And like you said, 34 minutes, its it seems low for a guy of his pedigree and caliber. I guess you were saying that this is perfect for Toronto, that they can just look at Danny Green and say, hey, not your series. So we both chose the Bucks to win this series. I'm not sure how, how many games did you choose the Bucks to win it in? Six. Yeah, six for me as well. And yet, the Raptors are up 3-2 with a chance to seal it. Was it the Zach Lowe co-sign on the Raptors? Like, what is happening? What are the big three points of this series where the Bucks have gone down 3-2 and somehow the Raptors have taken the NBA's darling, the, you know, statistically the best team in the league, a historically good regular season team, and to this, up to this series, a really, really good playoff team. How have they taken the mantle hold of this series? Um, so a lot of it really, I think these two teams are very even. And so when I point to things that have decided this series, it's going to sound like I'm saying it's luck or it's uh, not legitimate. Um, and that's not the case at all. Because like, if you ask me like, how good are the Raptors? I'm like, they're damn good. 
Like they're really good. I don't like how they match up with Golden State at all. Um, I've been thinking a lot about that. And I don't like that at all. Um, there are ways I'll talk myself probably into them competing a little bit, but I, I really don't like it, the matchup. Um, but I think in this series, a lot of it is the Bucks have generated a ton of unguarded looks. They've generated catch and shoot open looks for a team that that's what their offense is built on. Is you collapse the paint, you kick out. And guys make open open three pointers. They were never an elite team. They were fine at it because it turns out that we see this with the with the Rockets too. If you shoot enough catch and shoot three pointers, you're going to miss a fair amount of them because those shots are harder. And so your your efficiency is never going to be super elite unless you're Golden State. That's the level of shooting that you have to have. But the Bucks were good this year. They had the third best offense in large part because those guys could knock down shots and punish you if you collapsed on Giannis. And they've missed shots. They, they've generated open looks consistently. And they've missed shots. In the last three games, they're shooting something like, I think, uh, 27% on those unguarded catch-and-shoot shots via synergy. Um, and that's not anything that the Raptors are doing. It's just quality shooters missing looks. Uh, the Raptors, on the other hand, you talked about how good looks Fred Van Vliet has gotten. He's gotten great looks. They knock down their shots in a series where you have these two teams that are really good and really close. The problem is, is that we tend to we tend to work backwards on narrative. Like, oh, the Raptors won. Oh, you know what? The Bucks just can't win in the half court. They're not built for it. Bud's not a playoff coach. Giannis isn't ready to be the big guy. The Bucks are chokers. The Bucks are frauds. The Raptors are stepping up in the best moment. Is Kawhi Leonard the best player in the NBA? Like we rewrite narratives based off of the result in series that are basically very close and decided in these margins. Um, I don't think that that means that the Raptors don't deserve credit because, like, look, the if you ask me, okay, what's like a non variance factor that's been the biggest reason for this it's that the raptors defense has legitimately been the best in the nba in the playoffs this has been the best performance which is why that sixer series was so frustrating for me i thought that the raptors should have taken care of that series in five at most six they certainly should not have had to go to seven they certainly should not have had to go to the last shot on four bounces versus a sixers team without an offensive identity like, it was stunning to me that it took them that long. But consistently, when they play well, their defense has been the best in the NBA in the playoffs. Um, and that's, I think, the biggest credit to them. The offensive stuff, I think, is more is more variance-related. And that's where I think that the Bucks get in trouble. Because when the Bucks are going against a set Raptors defense, the Raptors have a huge advantage. And everyone's like, you got to play half court. You don't have to. Not in today's NBA. But you can't, you can't play. You have to play half court if you're taking the ball out of the basket every time because Fred Van Bleet's shooting seven and nine and Norman Powell's going off for a billion points. And Kawhi Leonard has been, you know, simply phenomenal. Last night was one of the best playoff games of his career. All of these things factor into the fact of when you have a series that flips from one team having a decided advantage to now being 3 2 in the favor of the underdog, you had to have had great performances from the home team. And you had to have a lot of variance factors go the other way. And that's how it's gone. And that's why I think both teams are really good. I think the Raptors have been a little bit better. And I think that uh, the Raptors have gotten the things that they needed to happen to happen. Yeah. I guess one quibble for me is the – I know the Bucks have gotten okay shots. And I know they have missed some open shots. But I think you point to the Raptors having, I agree, the best defense – in the league in the playoffs so far, I think 
harken back to you know Miami Heat defense from 2010 to 2013. Let's say the last year was not so much, but the way they covered the court, and it was really hard for shooters to get clean looks against the scrambling defense. Uh-huh. They were changing the angles to which shooters would receive passes from. They'd make passers have to be more creative. Something they've done to Giannis that the Raptors have done. Sorry, and they've completely changed how the Bucks. Shooters, the guys who usually just stand where they stand, or maybe do a little, you know, a basket cut, do a wheel route throughout the back, come out on the other side, take a shot, George Hill, something like that. The Raptors have completely changed the identity of the Bucks shooters because of how intelligent and cerebral the back end of their defense is, the angles they play at, the spacing they provide. Seemingly, with you have Marcus All in the middle, who's not a terrific athlete, but you have like Norman Powell. Fred Van Vliet, Kyle Lowry, Pascal Siakam, Kawhi Leonard, their coverage is really good. And I, I don't want to downplay the de- what, I guess, impact the defense has had on the Bucks shooters. I think the Bucks definitely have missed some shots, but more so than just missing shots, I think the Raptors have had extremely good defense. There's like the Raptors against Philadelphia. You say you're frustrated with that series. Kawhi Leonard is going over 14 over a span from games four to or sorry five to seven I think, but he's missing like there's not a guy within 10 12 feet of him he's above the break he missed four of those shots, the Bucks I don't think are missing that many of those shots it's these in between shots where they're catching the ball by their knee they're catching the ball by their left shoulder repositioning it to their hip and then going up from there guys like Siakam Leonard. Even Gasol sometimes are getting out on that. And I, I think that the Bucks win this in transition if they win it like you alluded to. But I don't think the Bucks are just missing shots. I guess you, you could disagree with that, but I do think the Raptors have had an incredibly large impact on how the three-point shooting has gone. And also, like, yes, they have quality shooters, but outside of Middleton and Brogdon and Hill, Ilyasova is like a good shooter, but like you said, he's streaky. Same with Miritich. Lopez, if you play him correctly, it's tough to keep feeding him open shots. And Bledsoe has been ignored, I think. Man, it's it's tough for me to imagine that's just missed shots for the Bucks. Well, I think, you know, to your credit, I mean, and here's one in your favor, right? So the Bucks are shooting 5 of 25 on guarded shots in the last three games. Guarded catch and shoots. Um, and that is horrible. Like 20% is god awful and the way i would look at it is you know the raptors defense is phenomenal and they're getting out on shooters and they have all this length and their instincts are so good um that probably like them shooting eight to ten of 25 is probably like that would be reasonable but they're at five of 25 so it's like the raptors have done everything right and the results are worse does that make sense like it's definitely, yeah. Oh no, I totally get it. Yeah. So it's like it's like the Bucks are performing relative even to really good defense. It's like even standardized, and and so that's and that's what creates this narrative of like the Bucks just aren't that good. And it's like no man, like the Bucks had the number one team in the league. They had the number one defense, the number three offense. They were great in all these categories. They 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 absolutely killed every other team. They smacked Boston around. Like this is a really good team. And I, I'm not here for the con- like trying to rewrite it. Is just like, well, the Raptors are up three two. They're up by one game, and now it's like, and you're not doing this, but I'm saying that like 
of like, well, the Bucks shooters aren't good and the Raptors defenders are, are this is the best defense we've ever seen. It's like, well, okay. Like, uh, this is a little bit variance. And, but that also means like, that's the way it goes, man. Like, that's, like, at the end of it, that's the way it goes, is that one team's going to perform a little bit better relative to difficult shots and one team's going to perform a little bit worse. And the Bucks are performing a little bit worse and the Raptors are performing a little bit better. And you have a, 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 the now three games in which one went to double overtime and one was decided by six points. And, like, the game four was a pretty standard Raptors win. That's why I actually thought they were going to get in game three. Like, I thought the Raptors would win big in game three. Um, so I think that, like, that's that's part of it. Um, Bledsoe's struggles definitely, I think, are part of this and that he just doesn't have the range to consistently be able to make him pay. Um, you know, it's just funny because, like, I, just, I look at the Raptors formula – you know, I don't have uh, – let me – off the top of my head. Oh, here I got it. Um, like Lowry, 17 points on 4 of 11 shooting. Not great. Um, seven rebounds, six assists. Like, passed the ball really well. But, like, a pretty standard – a pretty standard Kyle Knight. Um, like, wasn't wasn't great. Uh, like, Marcus Gasol, one of six, four points. Um, you know, Danny Green, obviously, an ofer <laughs> in, in my, a minus 17 in 15 minutes. Uh, Pascal Siakam, five of fifteen. Like you look at all that last night. Like are the Raptors executing brilliantly on offense, and the Bucks defense is this shell fraud thing? No. What happened? Well, Fred VanVleet had twenty one points. Like that's like that's how it goes. These two teams are really, I think, even. I think the Raptors. Um, I'll I'll say this. I underestimated what the impact would be of the Raptors half court offense. If they were making shots like the Raptors ability, if they get shots, their half court defense is so good um, that even if you create open looks, like you would better have a standardized shooting night. Cause if you suffer at all, you're screwed. Like you're just boned. If you don't have like a standardized shooting night, Brooke Lopez, one of four, Chris Middleton, 0 of 2 from 3, and, like, a lot of that's because he's, like, Middleton's performance is one that I'll say, like, that's entirely the Raptors. He's exhausted from trying to cover Kawhi. Kawhi's annihilating him. Like, there's nothing he can do because Kawhi's the best one-on-one defender on the planet. Um, like, Bledsoe's 2 of 7. Bledsoe's not a good three-point shooter. That makes sense. He, he made his first one, and he kept chucking, and he needed to try and make those shots, and he couldn't. Uh, Malcolm Brogdon, two of six from deep. That's a good shooter that's probably just missing some looks that he should probably make. Lopez, I think, missing looks that he should probably make. Um, Nikola Miritich, who, even that one, like, I'll, I'll give you that one because I've never been a Miritich guy, and I'm like, I don't know if you can count on him. Like, he's been so horrible in this series, and he was a minus 11 last night. Eliasova, 0 of 1. Um, so, like, all these things kind of combined. And you say, like, Giannis hit two threes, and that's definitely fair. Like, take off one of Giannis's threes and, and plug it into one of the other guys. Like, there is a model here where I can look at this and be like, no, like, they they force shots from the guys they wanted to force shots to. It's when it's it's when I watch and I'm consistently saying, like, wow, that's a really good look. It's a, an open corner look for Ursan Eliasova. Nope. Like, and then you come down and it's Fred Van Vliet hits seven and nine and Norman Powell in the previous games. Um, but this is where the playoffs really are decided is like as much as I want things to kind of be standardized because that's what I build all these things in my head on. It's not how it goes. And in these these one off games that decide so much about narratives, it's going to come down to who performs above expectations. And the Raptors have have performed above expectations. And that's either random or it's they've stepped up in the moment. And however you feel about that probably depends on your zip code.
Yeah. I think there's three statistical shooting outliers for this series so far for the Raptors. There's Kyle Lowry's game one, Kawhi Leonard shooting from downtown last game, and uh, Fred Van Vliet shooting from downtown last game. Like, Norm Powell in game four, he shot four of 13 from downtown. Like, he put them up. He made them early, but that's not a good shooting night. Like, you alluded to, like, Siakam, Gasol... Everybody is, well, not everybody, I shouldn't say, but a lot of the Raptors are not performing well from the field. And I think that's happening while they're creating higher quality looks in the Bucks. The reason, the thing that shocks me the most is you were alluding to the Bucks having to go against this mammoth Raptors half-court defense that we, neither you or I had any idea that it would be this impactful, this crazy. But Kyle Lowry's performance even saying 17 points on 4 for 11 shooting, and then saying, like, mm, that's okay. If he had done that during the Philadelphia series for five games, they win in five or six, right? I don't think going into this series, anybody, maybe except for Kyle Lowry and the Raptors, were expecting Kyle to come in and have, you know, an okay 17-point game when earlier in the playoffs we're seeing a zero-point game, we're seeing six-point games, we're seeing things like that. His, and that's the thing about Kyle Lowry is you've tweeted about it. Raptors people have tweeted about it. There's myself, Blake, Joshua Howe, Anthony Doyle. Everybody's written copious articles about Lowry's incalculable incalculable impact. But sometimes you just, you have to put the ball in the bucket. And Lowry's ability to score, especially from downtown in this series, and especially to get to the free throw line, seemingly more often than Yas Antetokounmpo, that is one of the biggest, I guess, things that has swung this series for the Raptors. And I don't know if that's fair, that he's getting to the line more than Giannis, but it's a progression, and that's really swung the series. You're trying to get me in trouble with Anthony Doyle. This is a trap. You have said a trap. Because <laughs> every single time I get the, actually, call it like the second I tweet about Kyle Lowry. Actually, he's always been great. It's a completely false narrative that he's ever struggled. Really? Ever, really? Really? You've had so many flameouts and sweeps. So many performances where it's like, wow, the Raptors did it again over this entire stretch. Everyone talks about the same thing, and it's all a false narrative. Okay. I think. Right. Um, I think. I think. I, go hey, ahead. So, like, here's my thing. I think Kyle, I, I've been thinking about this a lot, that if you are just in a situation long enough, even if it's not, if you're not adept at it, you'll improve. I've been thinking about that a lot this year. Um, it started when I was thinking, because I, I, the Nuggets are where I live where, in Denver, so I, I watched the Nuggets more than any other team. And like, Torrey Craig was a bad shooter. Like, he was just a, a fundamentally terrible shooter. But when everybody got hurt and he had to start, he got so many open corner looks that he started shooting 47% from three because he just had to shoot enough. Like eventually, if you're doing the same thing every night, practice makes perfect. And then for me, a lot of it is like, no, Kyle Lowry genuinely has struggled in the playoffs. And if you're going to look at his 0 for game in game one versus the, versus the Magic and go, ah, 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 but the plus minus, then you also have to look at these games where he has great scoring nights and is a negative in the plus minus. Like, you can't, you, you got to have one route or the other of, in terms of what matters. You can't be like, oh, no, he had a great game and the plus minus doesn't mean anything because it was negative. Or, oh, well, the, the box score is bad, but he was great because of the plus minus. Like, you can't always be shifting it to whatever that emphasis is. Like, Kyle was a, was a, was a net zero last night. Um, and that, to me, seems like Kyle was good. Fred Van Vliet was better. Um, he wasn't perfect. 
he wasn't terrible. He was fine. It was good enough. Um, I think that Kyle's, this has been Kyle's best postseason. He's been phenomenal. And I would rather buy into the narrative of a guy that has always struggled and has seen so much failure and misery and abject humiliation to finally be in a position to step up and make the most of it and to be the guy that we've seen him be all these years. I think that's a much cooler narrative than trying to rewrite as, no, no, Kyle's always been good. No, he hasn't. He's never been like this, and that's huge. His his eh, night is 17-7-6. One, that's phenomenal, but two, that's what we should expect of an all-star. And so, like, that's where I get to on Kyle is I'm like, no, like, the whole – all of the narratives about him I think were accurate and fair. I think he's broken those, and that to me is a more awesome story than trying to rewrite how it's never been his fault. Yeah, I think there's a couple of things is they're definitely coming your way is – from Raptors fans is say what I want you to say exactly how I'd like you to say it. You, you get a bit of that coming your way, and that happens when you have such a big um, following. And secondly, I guess there'll be three points. Secondly is Kyle, I think some of it was unfair because he's always been good. But the expectation from the league, the league fans, is to be putting up a lot of points. The expectation for the Raptors fans is to make the team better. A lot of the time, Kyle is still making the team better. But what you want from an all-star, a star, a superstar, whatever it ends up being, is you want them not only to maintain that they're good and you win the minutes when they're on the floor, but you want them to lift up the team. And that's generally where the problems with Kyle in the playoffs has come from, right? Is If he has a zero-point game and he's a plus 11, and you say, well, look, he was the best of any Raptor on the floor because they won his minutes by plus 11, it's like, that's great, and I'm glad he contributed so much to winning. But he clearly had the opportunity to lift the Raptors up in that game and wasn't able to do so outside of his general, incalculable, intangible output. And things like that happen. I mean, I had Ian Levy. I'm not sure. He's a the senior editor over at Fanside. I'm not sure if you're familiar with him. But he, like, he wrote a big Kyle Lowry feature where he was measuring by DRE his standardized performance in the playoffs and his standardized performance during the regular season. The type of great game he would have in the playoffs was 1-7 in seven compared to it was like 1-4 in four during the regular season. He's just performing at a much higher level during the regular season and very rarely having one of those quote-unquote Kalo games in the playoffs. And Ian, like when he was on the podcast, he did say, yes, a lot of players perform worse in the playoffs. It's hard to do it. But Kyle, there's just a little bit more of that happening. I think it's a little bit disingenuous for us as Raptors fans and writers to say Kyle has never struggled. Kyle has never, never been bad because he definitely has. But we do this, I think, or some people do this because he's there's just such a high water mark. The floor of his game is so good. But also, you know, you have to hold your stars to a level where you say your floor isn't good enough. You have to you have to hit your ceiling a couple times, and if anything, Kyle Lowry's playoff performances, his playoff story has been him maintaining his floor way more often than hitting a ceiling. And then you look at a guy like Kawhi Leonard, who is just ceiling all the time, steal the sun, steal the heart of your opponent, things like that. And then, like you said, I think if you acknowledge that Kyle struggled, this playoffs is like a beautiful turnaround for him because. He's getting closer and closer to that ceiling, something we saw in game one. 
yeah like to me it's just it's like such a, a better narrative to be like be like a guy that has struggled so much it doesn't have to define them it doesn't have to be the end of their story it doesn't have to be the, their epitaph there can be of evolution they can break those things it's one of the reasons everyone loved dirk in 2011 so much a guy that had struggled so much and faced so much criticism rising to the moment and being the guy that ever believed he could be and that's incredible um like you mentioned uh good versus good enough this is the burden that i place on stars like if a guy has if a role player has a night where it's like he's decent like honestly last night like eric bledsoe had 20 points four rebounds two assists Six of 14 shooting, which isn't great, but isn't bad. He did hit two threes, and he was a plus five. That's good enough. Like, for me, that's good enough, because I think Bledsoe is, like, the third or fourth best player on the team. Like, that's fine. That's, that's honestly okay. Um, Giannis was, had 24, six, and six uh, on nine of 18, 50% shooting, two of three from three-point range, and was a minus two in a game where they lost by six, so, like, the end was free throws, so you really think about it, and it was like he was either a positive or a net neutral in the time in which the game was like not the Bucks weren't having to foul because they were behind too late, right? And that's like, you know, that that was that's good. No, that's not good enough. Not for Giannis Antetokounmpo. Like, no, that's not good enough. He can't be minus two. He's got to be a plus eight. He's got to have. He can't have twenty four. He's got to have thirty. Um, you did bring up the whistle, and I think that that's a big part of the series, and. Um, I always tell fans that referees are an act of God and you can't control it and you shouldn't complain about it because it's not going to do anything. I feel the same way about the players. I don't honestly feel like them complaining is going to get much of what they want. I think coaches do. I think coaches making a big fuss winds up shifting the officiating quite a bit. Um, it's wild to me that Kawhi has 50 free throws as a mostly isolation jump shooter and Giannis has 50 free throws as the kind of guy that he has. Like, I will objectively say that based off of all of the time that I've spent watching both teams this season, which, despite what Raptors fans believe, is quite a bit, um, the Bucks have gotten a bad whistle. They just have. Like, they've gotten a bad whistle. And maybe, you know, I've always said, like, it's really t- dangerous when you're trying to rely on free throws in the playoffs because you can't count on those to be there. You need an external factor to go your way. Like, Kawhi can rise up in isolation and knock down an, an, a contested mid-range jumper that's a bad shot for 80% of the planet, planet. No, for 99.9% of the planet, and it's him and, like, seven other dudes that that's a great shot for. Um, and he can will that, and he can focus that, and he can skill that into being taking something into his control. Um, the Bucks can't control what the officials do. And so at the end of it, it's like they're relying on something that they can't dictate. Uh, I think they've gotten a bad whistle. I think Giannis has gotten mauled. I know Raptors fans believe that he pushes off and bumps and does everything else, and that's not called. That's a lot of it. I'm saying that relative to what I've seen, they've been able to throw four defenders at him and jostle him and bump him and slap him and foul him and get away with it. And part of that is just like, again, with like same with Fred, Fred Van Vliet. The way it goes sometimes. Like, that's just the way it goes. I think it's been a factor in this series. I think the Raptors have done a good job of setting the tone of, like, we're going to be this physical, so you're either going to have to call every single time and send him to the line 45 times that the league, league doesn't want, or you're going to have to let us get away with it. And, like, that's been a successful strategy over and over again in the playoffs throughout time. Um, they've employed the Giannis rules on him, and I think it's, it's done really well. I don't think that they've done it cleanly. There are, there are, there are always like, there's like two out of every 
say five of these possessions I'm talking about where I'm just like, that wasn't a foul. That was just great defense. Like Siakam's just ridiculous. Gasol's just awesome. Um, but there's about probably two where I'm like, no, nah, it was definitely a foul. And it's not getting called. And there's one where it's like, eh, it's, it's a coin flip. They've gotten a bad whistle. That's contributed to it. Um, Kyle, I think, has gotten a good whistle. They've, they've called a lot of perimeter stuff in this series, which has been weird. Um, but overall, yeah, I do, I do think that, that Kyle's been, ama- been really good in this series. Um, and then that's a more of a testament to a great story of him stepping up than it is about, you know, validating some sort of rewriting of the narrative to make him feel better or something. Yeah. The whistle, I'm, I'm from the Blake Murphy school of journalism. That's my guy. So it's, I'm very much of the mind that you don't talk about refs. The only time I've talked about refs in the playoffs was to say, Hey, don't talk about refs. And then when the big Giannis travel play I came out and I said, I haven't been spending all year defending Harden's zero step or gather step to call Giannis on a travel for that one. And I had so many Raptors fans in my mentions. And I'm a Raptors fan myself, but I was public enemy number one. But that's the thing, right, is Giannis, I think, gets a tough whistle in this series because, A, his first point of contact is almost always his right or left arm reaching out to get the defender. I'm, I'm sure you notice it, too. Yeah. which makes the ensuing contact a little tougher to call. But B, I mean, he's it's been a good whistle for the Raptors. I have no problem saying that that not having Giannis march to the line, you know, 12, 15 times a game has been very, very transformative for the Raptors' defense. And the fact that Giannis shot such a low percentage, I think did sway him away from going into the contact as much as usual because we saw a flash of it, right, as... Giannis comes down the throw of the defense, steps into Danny Green twice legally, and just dunks all over him. He can do that to anyone who isn't Kawhi Leonard almost every single play. Like, he can muscle Siakam. He can do that kind of stuff. But when he gets fouled really hard and he goes to the line and shoots, like, four for nine, it's it's not as rewarding for him. And he, I think he did play a little less physical, but you saying and my— and myself saying that, yes, the Bucks they've got a tough whistle, and especially Giannis, I think that's 100% true. I think, it, you know, it's every fan base, but you still see the Raptors. I was absolutely shocked. After game three, they're like, I don't know if it's a conspiracy or what, man, but I, I just I can't see it happening. It's, yeah, ref talk is lame. <laughs> so yeah, good. To, that's, that's a lot of it. It's like, is, you know, I, I think the rap the the Bucks have gotten an objectively bad whistle. But if if I'm if you ask me like is that why they're down three two? No, it's not why they're down three two. I have other reasons that are more more about variance and randomness that I think this series could be attributed to because I think the two teams are really even. Like let me put it this way: if we even out absolutely everything in terms of the variance stuff and everybody was shooting their percentages, do I think the Bucks are probably up three two? I do. Um, do I think that the margin is drastically different? I do not. Like, these two teams are really even. Like, they are a crucially even, which is kind of why I'm bummed that it's not going to go seven. Like, that's a bummer to me that, like, that these two teams, I think, are really close and really epic. And stuff like the Fred Van Vliet game, which if it happened in game six, I probably wouldn't even have any sort of complaints. I'd be like, that's what happens in game sixes, man. You put a team on the brink of elimination, and they're at home. Guys do that kind of stuff, and now we're going to get a game seven. But we got it in game five while the Bucks shot poorly at home. Um, and now we're probably going to have it over in six, which looks really bad on the Bucks. And I just think the Bucks are—I think the Bucks are a phenomenal team. I think the Raptors are a phenomenal team. Uh, I think it's very close, and I think that 
Um, the Raptors will have won in the margins where they needed to in order to secure the series and advance to the finals for the first time. Yeah. So we'll we'll swing this to a different part of the podcast. So Kawhi has defended Giannis on 113 possessions in games three, four, and five after matching up with him 19 times in games one and two. The Bucks are scoring 85.6 points per 100 possessions when Kawhi is on Giannis. This from Second Spectrum. And they're scoring 114.4 points per 100 with anybody else on him. How would you describe Kawhi Leonard's postseason so far with this in mind, if he had just one paragraph to do so? I mean, he's the MVP of the playoffs. That, there's no question. Uh, his ability to score one-on-one versus tough defense. Um, he's not a great playmaker, but he's made enough plays. Uh, he had two sequences last night challenging Giannis at the rim and just causing enough. Uh, there was one sequence late where Giannis went right at him, got the step on him, got the floater off the glass. It bounces just off of the part of the rim where if it goes an, a half an inch uh, to the left, that's a bucket, and it misses. And then it's like, great defense by Giannis, whereas if it makes it, it's like, oh, great bucket by Giannis. Again, that's how close these kind of margins are. Um, I think it's important to know that it's not like the Raptors are just like, hey, Kawhi, uh, take him in an island. We're going to guard all the shooters. And that's how, like, no, <laughs> like it's, we're going to guard you with Kawhi and Siakam's going to help. And Gasol is going to be there. Um, it takes three guys to guard him. But the difference is you can't bring three guys on Kawhi uh, because he's so good at mid range. You have to play one home on all their other guys. Apparently not Fred Van Vliet. Um, but you have to play all, all these other guys, and like you know, Kawhi can just cook you in isolation. He's just that good. Um, he's been phenomenal. It's been obviously like the best playoff run we've ever seen. It's it's interesting. I'm trying. I've been thinking about this this morning, trying to get my head around like why I haven't been like so. I've been like, oh, he's been he's been amazing, phenomenal, incredible, all these things, best player of the playoffs, blah blah blah. But I haven't just been like in awe. And I think a lot of it's just like I'm not surprised. I'm just, I'm genuinely just not surprised. Like, this is the guy that he was two years ago. This was a guy that was built as the the icon for one of the most successful, like, one of the most successful franchises in NBA history wanted to make him their guy forever. They wanted to make him their franchise star forever. And he walked away from that, and there are debatable reasons about why. Um, but the reason is because of what he's doing now. Like, they knew that he could do this. And honestly, like they played a big part in what he's done. You know, like they, they, he's, he, they played a big part in his success. Like they, I always talk about what San Antonio did with him, where they brought him in and were like, we just want you to be a corner shooter this year. That's all you're going to do. Just, just spot up. We'll work on practice on developing your off the dribble game. Okay. Year two. All right, now we're going to take it, and when they close out on you, you're going to get to the middle, and we're going to work on your middle move and how to get baseline. Okay, you're three. All right, now we're going to bring you from the corner up on dribble handoffs, and you're going to work a little bit in the pick and roll using the handoff. Okay, you're four. All right, now we're going to have you as a primary ball handler. Like They built him level by level by level, the way that you need to do with a player of his caliber, and you're seeing the work of that and how great he is at everything. Um I've made the Jordan comparison to him qualitatively. Um, I don't 
obviously want to make a quantitative comparison to Jordan because I don't want to set my mentions even more on fire than they normally are. But no player's jump shot reminds me more of Jordan than Kawhi's. He looks yeah. more like Jordan to me than Kobe did. Kobe's fadeaway was a lot more uh, exaggerated. Uh, it was a lot more herk-a-jerk. And Kawhi's is very much that rise straight up, right over you, knock it down. His fadeaway looks very similar in the post. Like there's a video I looked to the other day of comparing Kawhi and Jordan. He has the same skill set as Michael Jordan. He's just not Michael Jordan. But that's a pretty good comparison, I think, being compared to the greatest player of all time. Um, that seems pretty good to me. So I think uh, what he's done has been tremendous. Um, and I don't think any of it is an outlier. I'm not shocked at any of it. I'm just not surprised um, at absolutely any of it. And it's it's incredible to see him do it. Um, I think Giannis equally on health defense has been great on Kawhi. Like that's been kind of underrated. I think that when Giannis has helped on Kawhi, it's not going to show up in the matchup data because that's primary defender. Um, but I think that Giannis has done a really good job defending Kawhi. That's one of the things is like Giannis has been great in the series. Kawhi's just been a little bit better. Yeah, absolutely. The I like the point you make about like the it's I've made that one as well. Not not deep into the numbers, but on the jump shot, there's the same amount of rigidity in the Jordan pull up and the Kawhi pull up. It's just your whole body is a brick and you're just wrist. Not a lot of arc. You just fling it at that back rim, it drops straight down. A couple of stats that surprised me about his performance last night was all nine of his assists ended up with three pointers. So it was 27 points off of his nine assists, which is kind of crazy. And that when he guarded Giannis in the fourth quarter, Giannis only attempted three shots and he had two turnovers. It's crazy to think that he can have this much of an outsized impact. It's seeing the stats is kind of mind numbing to see how well he's guarded Giannis. And obviously with the benefit of a very, very friendly whistle, I specifically remember you delving into this big piece a couple years ago where the San Antonio Spurs defense was better with him off the floor because of how teams were zeroing him out of the defense. That was you, correct? Yeah. Yeah. What is the difference between this Raptors defense and how they're able to keep him as a major cog of the defense and that San Antonio Spurs defense that was, I guess, failing to implant him on the other team's best player? To be honest with you, the Bucs aren't willing to do that. Um, the Bucs aren't willing to do what it takes because it remains removing one of their best offensive players. So the way that you've essentially performed what my wife termed co-isolation um, was you isol you're isolating Kawhi in the corner um, or way up high. You space him so far out he can't help and you run action to the other side. Um, you have to take Middleton and you have to put him in the corner and just be like, Chris, you're not going to do anything. <laughs> like. We need you as a weapon because you got to have whoever he's guarding. That's like you gotta have a weapon good enough to take him out. But then you have to be able to run pick and roll on the other side and do it that way. Um, and here's the thing. If they put Kawhi on Giannis, what are you going to do then? You can't just have Giannis sit in the corner. You just can't. Now, I do think that one of the problems in the series has been that they haven't used, used Giannis as a screener as much as they needed to. Um, there are all these things that conceptually I like the idea of that Budenholzer would probably be like, look, you can't do that because of X, Y, and Z. Or you, a lot of times what people also don't get because players don't have enough, like, or we as fans and analysts don't have enough access 
is we don't know things like he's not really comfortable doing that. And you're putting him in a position where he has to do something that even though he's been good at in spot minutes, he's really uncomfortable. Like that's not something you can do in a playoff series and games of this magnitude. Um, so there are all these reasons I may be missing out on, but I always watch it. I'm like, I don't know why they're not running Giannis as the screener over and over and over again. They should be running Bledsoe pick and rolls with Giannis every single time and making them. And like they did, they ran it last night where they got that lob for Giannis off of Brogdon um, because Brogdon's a good enough shooter off the bounce that they had to step up on him and that opened Giannis on the roll. That was broken coverage, but it's also like you do that over and over again to try and break their coverage. Bledsoe's inability to hit mid-range jumper complicates this. Um, but I think that a lot of it is just, you know, if, if Kawhi is guarding uh, Middleton, then he needs to be, then that guy needs to be in the corner. Like, he just needs to be in the corner not doing anything. Uh, you space him out, and you just effectively negate him, and you run four on four. Uh, it's really the only way for you to be able to get it done because, like, you have to take you have to take him completely out. Now he'll help off, but you should be able to punish him because if you're giving Chris Middleton spot up shots, he's probably going to knock down a, a lot. You're going to get him in rhythm. Um, I don't think it would be a bad idea either for the Bucks, honestly, to put somebody else on, um, to put somebody else on Leonard in Game Six because they need Middleton's offense. Brogdon has gotten cooked, but I'm of the opinion that I'm like you know what, like, you're going to get cooked. It's Kawhi Leonard. He's really good. If Kawhi has 50 and Fred Van Vliet has 10, you're probably going to live with it. Like, that's going to be okay. If you get the performances last night and you take out, like, if you just limit Fred Van Vliet stuff because you're not overreacting to Kawhi, you're probably in a better spot. Yeah. I guess um, one more Raptors-centric question, and that's game six, who wins it? Mm. Uh, I've already got in on uh, Raptors minus two. Um, they're favored by two points in that game. I think uh, I've seen enough playoff series, and I those impact me more at this point in series like this than, um, say, the individual matchups or how I think the series is going. The Bucks have lost three straight. They were downtrodden after losing game four. They got back up, and they lost game five. They came out red hot in that first quarter, uh, and then they blew it. And then they lost a heartbreaker at home in game five where Fred Van Vliet goes off for seven to nine shooting from three. Um, I don't know. I don't have, I can't believe that the Bucks will be able to respond to the level they need to on the road with a chance to go to the NBA finals in game six. I just can't. Um, the half court offense has been solved. The Raptors have figured out how to create open looks and their guys are knocking them down. The Bucks aren't knocking them down. Uh, sure, statistically, I want to say, no, that should regulate itself. And in game six, like the Bucks will probably hit some and the Raptors will miss some and that will give the Bucks a chance. But I've seen enough of these series where you get to this point, it's just like momentum's just going downhill, man. Like the, the, everything's just going downhill. The Atlanta Hawks were not so bad in 2015 to get swept by the Cleveland Cavaliers. Like they were a better team than that, but they were banged up and they were tired. And they were after they lost the first three, losing two at home, um, they did not have it in them to get up, and they just got wiped in game four. And that, to me, is where we're at in the series, that the, the Raptors won the game that they needed to, the two games. They needed three, where the Bucks could have won in double overtime, and they needed five on the Bucks 
Bucks home floor. And winning those two games has effectively won the series. I think it's over. I think the Raptors win in six, and they advance to the NBA Finals to face the Golden State Warriors. That is welcome news. It's it's a bit childish, but as you just said, that last part, a, a smile crept across my face. Um, let's swing into something that one of the most intriguing things I think you did this year as far as writing was you wrote two mammoth pieces for Harden and Giannis based on their MVP credentials. Um, what does your prep and research look like when you're trying to lock down an MVP candidate? So you watch all year. Um and you try and if there's a signature game from a candidate by January, by December, we know who the candidates are going to be. Um, you start, if there's a big game, you make sure you watch those and you take notes. You keep an eye on uh, the advanced metrics. I try and do a deep dive in January uh, to try and catch as much as I can. And a deep dive is, even if I don't write on it, I'll usually write on it. I'll take one or two of the candidates and I go, uh, I have synergy and I will literally watch every single possession. Um, I'll watch out all of their possessions and you're not going to, your, your eyes glaze over eventually. Like I've seen so many Giannis drives into three defenders in transition and gets fouled. Like I've just seen, I've seen so many hardened Capella pick and rolls that, you know, my eyes glaze over. I know what it looks like. Um, so you don't catch all the details that maybe you want to, if you were sharper, but you only have so many hours in the day. And so you do that once, and then really in March, once I've decided on where we're at in, in the race, um, you sit down, you do it again, and you watch. I watch every position on – I watch every single possession where they're on the floor defensively. Like I literally pull up every single Rockets defensive position, and I flip through and make sure Harden's on the floor, and I watch all of those possessions, and I take notes. Um, you check those against the stats, and you're looking for the nexus between what the numbers tell you and what the eye test tells you. And if you notice things like, hey, you know what, Harden said like three floaters. That that seems hot. Like, how is he doing on floaters this year? Oh, he's shooting 75% when I know that doing this last year, he was shooting 47% last year, or he was 47 percentile last year and 75th percentile this year. That's huge for where his game is at. And that goes into your analysis. Um, you factor in how the team performs with them, how they don't. You factor in um, what's the best version of that team look like, what's the floor. When they aren't good, what does the team look like? When they are good, what does the team look like? What is the, like, what is the floor for their performance? So you, you ask the question of, when that guy plays the worst, what does that look like? And it's like, oh, it's still really good. Like Even when he has a bad game, he's still getting 25-5. Um, and you factor that stuff in. You talked to a lot of your colleagues. I asked, you know, the people I respect the most about what they think. You do straw polls. I did three straw polls this year of likely voters to get a sense of who they thought um, should be the MVP, um, to get a sense of, of what the public perception is. Uh, and at the end of it, you come out with a model for, for whatever it is. You have to answer the question first of what do you think is most valuable? And for me, it's impact. It's who's the most impactful guy when it comes to winning. Um, you dig, dig into all of that factoring offense and defense and team chemistry and leadership and all other factors. And you hope you come out with an answer that's the closest to the best. There was, by the way, like that's, that's very impressive. <laughs> um, I'm very impressed by that, but there was a great article. I can't remember who wrote it about why Joel Embiid falls down so much. There's a bunch of funny little idiosyncrasies that players have. Like if you watch OG Ananobi play, you know that, He's very powerful, jumping off two feet. When he jumps off of one foot, he juts his knee out way too much, and he often gets called for offensive fouls because it's a dangerous play 
you watch Pascal Siakam, you see his, there's a lot of toe tapping, those types of things. Like we were talking about Giannis Antetokounmpo, there's reaching out with the off arm just to establish contact. So he's more comfortable dribbling the ball. He can identify his defender. Watching so much of Giannis, watching so much of James Harden, what are the two strangest things, one for each, that they do on offense and defense that somebody who doesn't watch with as keen an eye of you, as you, sorry, what, what are those things? Uh, I think for Giannis, it's a pretty typical thing, but it's just it is interesting given the profile. Like Giannis is likely to win defensive player of the year. It's either going to be him or Gobert probably. Um, maybe Miles Turner, but it's probably going to be Giannis. Um, he has a real bad streak of he dares guys. He really does dare guys. He will completely play off because he believes he can get to the corner faster than he can. Uh, you see this with a lot of really good defenders, but it, it's particularly bad with him. It's, it's a thing that drives me crazy because it's such a thing built of hubris. Uh, he'll help all the way off to the opposite side of the paint, and then the ball is rotated to that corner. And you can tell that he's like, I can get there. No, you can't. You can't. Do it. Not even you can get there. And so he'll, <laughs> he'll give it up. I think on, on the other thing is, is defensively, he will. Um, uh, he has some tricks in his bag in terms of uh, how he muscles up guys. So he, he's, he's so much more physical and nasty than people kind of realize. He's got like, oh, he's just sweetheart. Nah, that guy's. He he he's really good at quietly giving shoulders because his shoulders are massive. He uses his shoulders in such a way where um, if you're next to him driving and he's like guarding you from the side, he's able to turn like just slightly and like his shoulder bumps you and it knocks guys like four feet off of their thing. And they're like, what? Hey, and they're calling for the foul. But it's it's so subtle and there's so much force in this nudge that it drives guys off and he, he doesn't get the call. So like, that's like a, a little thing. Um, Harden, honestly, uh, the reason that I said that 2017 is better than this year, there's a couple of reasons for him. I've done more on Harden than I've done on any other player. Harden's the one guy I've watched the most of. I've watched, like I definitively say, like I've watched Harden more than I've watched any other player in the league. Um, even the guys in Denver. Um, Harden... He has this weird thing. There are just offensive rebounds where he just stands there. I mean, his guys are clearly trying to get the ball. There's three. He's in the paint and he just stands. There. He he looks like a guy that just like wandered onto the floor and is like doesn't realize like oh oh no I'm on a I'm on a basketball court. Oh no, like like he was on his phone and walked into a pickup game and is like oh oh no oh what do I do. And then, like, guys are getting the bucket and putting it back, and it's really strange to see. Um, offensively, my favorite little subtle thing he does is he'll when he's running pick and roll, uh, he has such good feel for pick and roll. When the defender is trying to maintain space between him and Clint Capella, he'll get in front of, of the dropping big, and he'll pass the ball behind that guy's legs to Clint Capella rolling. It's an absurdly difficult pass. Like, you have to have so much precision on the bounce and understanding of space and where the guy's legs are. There's a million ways that pass goes wrong, and he does it routinely throughout the year. It's one of my favorite passes. And so it's, like, really interesting to kind of see um, how that goes. Uh, oh, the other Giannis thing is he randomly takes, like, he one-hops after making passes to the corner when he's driving. Like, he passes it, and he'll just jump on one leg, like, three times. 
after doing it. I don't know why he does it. He just like hops to the side. And I don't know whether he's like hoping for the guy to, to shoot or like trying to will the, the bucket in or whatever, but it's like a really weird thing. He sidesteps on one leg like three times to the side. It's like a really weird thing he does. Interesting. One my favorite thing about Harden is the the sweep through that it's not the KD sweep through that KD popularized, but it's when you're going into the lane, you get people who are taller than you to reach in across their body, setting them off balance. And then you get people who are weaker than you to reach in and just try and hack away. And he just he drops the ball low. He gets into this like running back mode and he just runs through the paint and i've i before he started doing it i had never seen and i adopted it in my own type of playing basketball because when people reach across you when you're like that you just don't lose the ball and there was always this idea that you you don't want to keep the ball low because it'll get swatted but he was just like well why don't i just put the ball a little bit lower yeah and then i'll get low too and when people reach and they foul me it'll feel like nothing because i'll just be this small little composed person and then at the end, I'm extremely strong. I have a really great one-foot jump. I'll just spring up to the rim. Do little, little things like that. Harden, and like you said, his pick-and-roll play is genius. How he, how he maintains the ability to shoot a floater or a lob at all times, it completely, I, I could never do that. And a lot of players can't. It, it astounds me. He's so good in that play type. When you... Um... When you go back and you watch all of his step backs, so like that's that's a question that you have to start with if you're doing a study like I do. It's how does he? Why is he so good at this? How like how does he how does he do this? Um, that low dribble you're talking about, I call it the narco dribble because it's not like a crossover between the legs, high energy like where am I going? Where am I going? Where am I going? He just like lulls you to sleep. He puts it right in front of you and he stares at you and guys are just like they can't help it. And but what's also funny is his understanding of where your feet are is insane. Um there's a, a couple key plays I, I singled out in the piece where like Marcus Morris was defending him and he's on the left side wing and he's doing the narco dribble. He waits until all it takes is Marcus takes one step. His left leg's planted, okay? His left leg is planted. He puts his right leg just one, like a half step behind him to his right to try and guard in case Harden tries to get baseline. And the second he does that, the minute that foot moves back, Harden goes into his step back move because that means that he has to now close more space to get forward left than he did a half step ago. And you realize like that's how he created space. Um, he's so good at being able to just like his jab step in the corner, he creates a ton of corner threes on inbounds because he jab steps and he just waits for you. You can't, nobody stays disciplined. You can't because you're so worried about that first step of his, even though he's not the most explosive guy, you take that half step and boom, he's into a step back. It's really amazing. Because it's such a narrow differential in space, but it makes the absolute difference between a miss and a make for Harden on a three-point shot. Yeah, um, like you said about watching the feet. I, I did a, a piece on Kyle Lowry earlier this year where I looked at the same thing for Kyle. Is when Kyle attacks a closeout, he, it's not that he goes left or that he goes right or that he likes one more. I found that like 80% of the time, he's just attacking the plant foot. 
indiscriminately, he's like, I'm going to attack the plant foot so that I get to my first step guaranteed before the other guy gets to his first step. And that's why a guy like Kyle Lowry, who's so limited physically in so many ways, gets these bull buys because he's like, he's either going to shoot the three or he's watching very, very tediously this guy close out on him. And he's like, when's that foot going to plant? Because I'm going to make you twist on your hip or I'm going to make you pick that foot up. Either way, I'm going to get by you because it's going to be a slow action for you. It's just how these players do it in real time is absolutely crazy to me. And there's it's no, awesome. There's no metric for this stuff. And, um, you know, people say, like, stats don't say everything. And it's absolutely true. But stats will also point you in that direction. Like, if you look at Kyle's drive percentages, you're like, oh, like, his drive percentages are really good. Like, with Leonard or with Kawhi, you're able to be like, okay, I know um, – you're able to say like, all right, he's really good from this spot on the floor. Why is he better from this spot? And you're like, oh, it's because when he when he fades away, baseline, he's got a clear shot at the rim because of where he jumps from. Like he just jumps from a different spot. There's all these like tiny things. I genuinely have a lot of moments where I wish I had more time in the day. And maybe if I didn't spend so much time arguing with Raptors fans on Twitter, I'd be able to. <laughs> to be able to like look at, at all of these little intricacies because there's so much in the game to to really love. Yeah, well, that's also like Malcolm Brogdon has one of the best um, opposite foot floaters, DeMar DeRozan as well. And like the thing is, right, is that rim defenders, rim protectors, Miles Turner, Rudy Gobert, these guys watch the steps so they can get you trapped on your last step, so they can get you trapped in the air and they can they can absorb you at the rim. But when you when you switch up which foot you're jumping off of, you can catch defenders flat footed at the rim. You can do and like. Harden does it. Lowry does it. Very smart players. Paul George has really great off-foot um, shots. Just, yeah, lots to love. I feel like that's a, a good place to end it. Yeah, for sure. Uh, thanks for having me on, man. I really love it. I've, I've read Raptors Republic for a decade, as we were talking about before we started, uh, and I'm always happy to come on. I love uh, I love the site. I'm, you know, it's, I have to consume a lot of media, and I have to do a lot. I still, after big wins and big losses, I still go to Raptors Republic and I read the stuff and check out the great stuff there because it's just such a phenomenal site and so many great writers have come through there. Um, and I'm as much as their fans can cause me stress, uh, I'm still exceptionally happy for everybody uh, that's about to. I, I am like I'm legitimately thinking I'm probably going to the finals. And I'm I'm really considering spending one of the games of game one and game two in Jurassic Park just to be around the fans and how excited they are. Yeah, it, it would be it would be a hell of an experience, man. Uh, yeah. Thank you so much for coming on. It's uh, it's been an absolute pleasure. This was a great conversation. I'm I'm very happy with it. And uh, to all the listeners, uh, you can follow him on Twitter at I believe it's Hardwood Paroxysm or HP Basketball. That is his at. He does all of his writing for the Action Network. And, uh, yeah, thanks once again for coming on, man. Thanks for having me. Okay, and for everybody listening, you guys can catch this on Raptors Public later today as you're listening to it now. Whenever you get around to it, stay blessed and goodbye. Want to hear something amazing? Discover matches all the cash back you earn on your credit card at the end of your first year automatically, dollar for dollar, with no limit on how much you can earn. Extra cash? Come on, how amazing is that? In fact, it's even more amazing when you realize all the places where Discover is accepted. 99% of places in the U.S. that take credit cards. 
So when it comes to Discover, get used to hearing yes more often. Learn more at discover.com slash yes. 2020 Nielsen Report limitations apply. Regina King for Cadillac Escalade. When people ask, Regina, do you like to compete? I say, bring it on. Those are the moments that drive you to achieve more. And when you win, you keep reaching higher. To me, that's what the Cadillac Escalade represents. It's always evolving in technology, in design, everything. Because success isn't the end. It's just the first step to what comes next. The 2021 Cadillac Escalade. Never stop arriving.